There are some figures who live in memory, live damned eternally in historical memory by virtue of the great evil in which they were involved. And surely, though he didn't seem to fully comprehend it himself, Adolf Eichmann was one such person. Uh, how I turn to Neil Bascom instantly, he being the author of an excellent and absolutely riveting new book titled Hunting Eichmann, uh, how a band of survivors and a young spy agency chased down the world's most notorious Nazi. How did Adolf Eichmann explain to himself what he had done? Well, I mean, I think his funda fundamental argument was that he was simply following the orders. And, and following those orders, what did he do? He, he was the operational manager of the genocide of, of the Jews uh, in Europe. He was responsible for, he would go into a country and he was considered the, the, what the Germans called the master of the Jews. And he would go into a country, he would identify the various Jewish populations in the country. He would crawl uh, the Jewish population, strip them of, of their identity basically. Um, and then corral them in ghettos and then schedule the trains. And basically his job ended when he brought them to the door of Auschwitz or other extermination camps in Europe. Rather reminds you of uh, Tom Lehrer's song about Werner von Braun, who designed the V-2 rockets that bombed London. And you remember that great refrain, I send them up, where they come down, that's not my department, said exactly. Werner von Braun. Yes, and I think that's that's exactly Eichmann's uh, point of view, or at least that's his that was his point of view in in his trial. I think it was much more complicated than that. Well, I had never known about the series of interviews that he gave to a friendly uh, was he a Hungarian or he was a Dutch a Dutch guy uh, down there in Buenos Aires where he was hiding for a number of years, and this fellow wanted to sort of capitalize on it and turn this into a book or a series of articles that he was trying to sell to Time. Correct. Uh, but uh, Ricardo Clement, the, uh, the, the uh, pseudonym under which he lived down there, uh, testifying to this fellow. What's his name again? Uh, Wilhelm Sassen. Sassen. Uh, he talks with considerable ferocity about how the Jews were in evil and they had to be expunged from the face of the earth. Yes, and what's interesting about that uh, those particular transcripts, you know, Eichmann was interrogated in Israel once he was captured. Yeah. But these tapes, these Sassen tapes, as they're called, were from a time when Eichmann never considered the fact that he would be captured. And so they reveal the vigor and the passion that he went about um, persecuting and exterminating the Jews in a way that ultimately uh, came back to haunt him at his trial. And down there with Sassen, he was really bragging and building up his role though I'm sure his basic account of what he did was accurate, but he was rather miffed that the large Nazi German population in and around Buenos Aires wasn't giving him sufficient credit. I mean, he was basically a pariah in the German community yeah. uh, in Argentina. And, you know, I met uh, several uh, Germans who knew Eichmann at the time, uh, and they remember his, you know, damp, wet uh, handshake. Oh, yes. The fact that he would constantly rant about how Germany had made colossal mistakes and ranting the fact that uh, Germany didn't finish off uh, the Jews. Let's examine the man from more or less the beginning. Um, Where is he from? What are his early years like? How does he get into the Nazi party? How does he become the Jewish expert for the Nazis? Yes, he was no great expert, actually. He was no great expert at the end of the day, although he, he 
he told everyone that he was. He was he, born he, in Germany. Yeah. Uh, he came soon to, to Austria, actually, Linz, uh, Austria, and was raised there in a rather normal upbringing. There was nothing, uh, at least from any memories of, of friends or, or people who knew him in his teenage years, that would identify him as, as someone who would become this uh, notorious Nazi, this, someone who would vigorously go <laughs> after the Jews. But what happened was is that he... He joined the SS soon in, in his early 20s. And that was the way up. And that was a way up. I mean, you can see what's, what's, what's horrifying about Adolf Eichmann, I think in summary, is that a lot of the choices he made were not necessarily because of a um, ideological bent, although that was, that was definitely part of it, but it was career choices. He was making career choices within the SS to become part of the Jewish solution because he knew that that was something that Hitler and various other leaders within the Nazi party were That was a better about. career path than to get involved in the revival of, of German agriculture, say. Exactly, or to go after the Freemasons, for instance, uh -huh. which, which was actually his first job within the SS. And what did they do to train him to become the Nazi's Jewish expert? He picks up a few words of Yiddish and or Hebrew, I guess. Yes, I mean, he, he picked up a few words of, of Hebrew and Yiddish and, and constantly boasted that he was fluent uh, in those languages, but he, but he was uh, not in any respect. Uh, he would meet with Jewish leaders in Germany. Um, he would talk to them about their communities. He actually made a secret trip uh, to uh, Palestine um, back during the war and uh, stayed there, said he was a newspaper reporter. What did he do while he was in pre-Israel Israel? Virtually nothing. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, he goes on this spy mission and he, he meets some Arab leaders uh, uh -huh. at the time, but, but you know, the information that he was gathering was, I, I think, of no consequence. I've actually never seen and, and never identified any documents from that particular trip that uh, are of any merit. The uh, famous occasion on which the plan for the full extermination of all the Jews they could get their hands on was the Banzai Conference, held, as I remember, it in January of 1942. Correct. Just a month after Germany declared war on the United States. Lots of young Americans don't realize that they declared war on us before we declared war on them. Uh, but at the Banzai conference, the man really charged by Hitler to run the whole thing, um, namely. Um, well, there uh, was there were several. I mean, you have you have Himmler, you have uh, Heydrich, you have but, 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 but it's Reinhard Heydrich that I'm talking about. Heydrich chairs that conference with various other uh, government officials, high government officials, high Nazi party officials, army, and so on is represented. And at his right hand is our man. Yes. Uh, as sort of the secretary of the meeting. He was the secretary of the meeting. He took the minutes. But he largely organized the agenda. He largely, largely uh, brought all the information about uh, where and, and what the populations are in the various European countries and, uh, and brought his expertise in how, you know, at this point he had already gone to, to Austria uh, and participated in the uh, deportation of, uh, of the Jewish Well, they had already there. begun killing Jews, of Correct. course, by January Absolutely. 42. But the big exterminations were coming as they rolled eastward. And uh, it took the Soviet half of Poland. Uh, they had originally split Poland in 1939. Uh, the Germans had the 
western half, the Soviets had the eastern half. When they rolled across in mid-41 in attacking Russia, then they get all of the rest of Poland and a good portion of Russia, and they're getting millions of Jews under their power. And that's when they come to the decision, we've got to kill them all. Right. And, you know, I mean, Eichmann's role in, in, in the Jewish question was went from emigration to deportation and finally to extermination. And the Wannsee Conference was, was definitely uh, at the center of that. And you have with Eichmann prior to that, he had seen some um, extermination vans on a very minor level. And, you know, his reaction to that, he was, was physically actually ill, or that's what he recounts on seeing this. But what he comes away from that is, is not any, any, anything in respect to the Jews, but he was more worried about the German soldiers and their morale in having to do this. So was um, the ultimate boss of the SS, namely Heinrich Himmler. Yes. In a famous speech he gives to other high SS officers, it's the one in Posen, isn't it? In Poland. I believe so, yes. He talks about the great sacrifice they are making, and their honor is that though they've got a very difficult task, they remain pure and decent. Yes. But it's a difficult task to kill millions of people, including little children. But they've been able to keep their own inner integrity, even while engaged in mass murder. I mean, at, this, Hitler. at this point, Eichmann, and he says this to a friend, I mean, he absolves himself of, of any guilt. He told a friend at this point, uh, the popes have given their orders, uh, yeah. and I'm now free. Well, that's the basic defense that all sorts of people engaged in genocide use. Um, I was just following orders. It came from higher up. If I didn't do it, somebody else would have done it. Right. And But the thing about Adolf Eichmann is, you know, you have, post his trial, you have Hannah Arendt uh, saying that mm -hmm. he's the banality of evil. But if you actually go back and see what Eichmann did, not so banal. There's, there's nothing banal about it. And this is particularly the case in Hungary. Where, yes. where in 1944 he was he was sent in and really came to the foreground. We need to tell that story. We need to talk about Arendt's famous book, which stirred a great uh, controversy, which lasted for years. There's so much to this fascinating story, including the very interesting account you give, and I'd never seen this documented before, of how he uh, managed to escape for so many years, how he got to uh, to Argentina, how he organized his life for some. 15 years before he was finally caught and spirited out of Argentina by that wonderful Mossad team. We'll tell about all of that when we return after uh, a quick stop for some uh, simple messages and then back to Neil Bascom. Neil Bascom is our guest tonight, an American writer, freelance basically, uh, though he's written for many of the major publications as well, and the author of a number of interesting books. The last time you were here, we talked about your book about Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. Yes, so a vastly different subject. A very different subject, indeed. Now we're drawing from this excellent new book, Hunting Eichmann, that is just published by Houghton Mifflin, I believe. Is that right? Yes. So let's go back to Eichmann's uh, earlier life. Uh, he, he was in the war. He helped to kill the six million, and... Uh, some others as well, not only Jews. But basically, he was uh, the man who organized it all. He did the logistics and got all those Jews uh, slaughtered to the satisfaction of his bosses. The war is over. What happens to him? Well, the war is over. Uh, he's on the list of criminals that should be apprehended. He's on the list of, of criminals, but he's not high on the list. What's so interesting uh, about the story of Eichmann and, his, and the manhunt for him 
is that, you know, even at the Nuremberg trials, for instance, a judge wrote in, in, on, on the side of his notes that who is this Adolf Eichmann? Uh -huh. And so what you have is that Eichmann during the war largely stayed in the shadows. Whenever he would go into a country, he would have his adjuncts uh, go about the business. He made a point of not being photographed, didn't he? Yes, and he, any photographs, he almost never was photographed, and the few times that the SS photographed, he had the negatives destroyed. So he had the idea, of course, that, and he was paranoid about it, that he would be sought as a war criminal. But the reality of it is in, in April, May of 1945, the name Adolf Eichmann was on a list, but it was you know, on page 51, for instance. He didn't get to Argentina immediately for four or five years. He was knocking around in Europe. Yes, I mean, he, he escaped. Uh, well, he was on the run directly uh, as the war closed. He, he went uh, first to Austria, and then he slipped into Germany, but not without being caught a couple of times uh, by Americans, put into camps. But at this point during the war, people wanted to be put into POW camps. They didn't have any food. Their uniform. When he was caught, there. they didn't know who he was or what he had done. No, he went under pseudonym. Uh, Otto Ekman uh, yeah. was one of the pseudonyms he took. Uh, he stripped off his uniform, of, cor of course, had tried to burn off his SS uh, tattoo with cigarettes. Uh, so he At was one point, we observe him selling black market eggs to Jewish survivors of the death camps. Yes. So after the, That's he an incredible time. I mean, it's incredible. He, he, after he finally escaped out of his last camp, he went to northern Germany and became, uh, lived in the forest, basically, and, and became a forest ranger as well as a, a, um, worked in chopping down trees and the rest, became a chicken farmer, um, and eventually sold eggs to not only Jewish... Does he have a wife at that time? He has a wife, and he, he saw her directly after the war ended and said, um, you know, you may never see me again, yeah. and he went away. My... My understanding is that he was writing letters to her during this period. But finally, he is transported to Argentina with considerable help by the organization commonly called Odessa. Yes, I mean, Odessa is, is one of the names given to the organization, uh, but it was largely an organization run by Juan Perón uh, in Argentina and, and individuals within his government who Perón wanted to bring uh, Nazis... Uh, uh, particularly those individuals who had experience in science and in industry. He brought a lot of the wealth from Germany into the country as well. And he thought the Nuremberg trials, for instance, were a great atrocity. And so he was willing to let anyone and everyone into his country. And he set up a rat line, basically, mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to bring these people in. And he had the help of individuals within the Catholic Church. That's a very important assertion you're making. Uh, many in the Catholic Church would argue no, no. To the contrary, the Catholic Church, under the leadership of the Pope, was busily engaged in trying to save as many Jews as possible. My, the documents in my understanding of this are, are fairly clear. I in no way say that, that from the top down the, uh, the Pope was, was saying, let's, bring in, uh, let's help facilitate the bringing in of Nazis. I don't think the Pope uh, was even aware of that. But I, there were definitely individuals, uh, uh, an individual named Bishop Hudal, uh, high-level individuals within the Catholic Church who were sympathetic to the Nazis. Were these German bishops? These were German bishops. Yeah. They were Austrian bishops. Uh, they were Argentinian uh, Catholic. Mm -hmm. I mean, Argentina is a strongly Catholic nation. So you have mm -hmm. 
this connection of networks. And Eichmann, you know, stayed in convents and monasteries on his way down through Germany into Austria and finally into Italy where he took a boat to Argentina. Once there, he pretty soon brings his wife over. Within two years. I mean, he goes to Argentina and everything's set up for him. The, he has identity pass uh, to, to work. A job is given to him uh, north of, of Buenos Aires. And two years later, he brings his wife and his three sons over. And he winds up, has a number of jobs which don't work out well. He tries a few business enterprises. They all fail. He doesn't have money. While lots of the other Nazis in Argentina are flourishing, he is rather bitterly at the lower level economically and is something of a pariah, as you said earlier. Uh, finally, he winds up working in an auto plant. Yes, he ends up working for, for a Daimler-Benz uh, auto plant, uh, and first on just on the line and then as a foreman. Uh, and that's what he was doing in 1960 when the operation began. And the operation begins in a fascinating way. I'd never, know, I'd never known this before. One of his sons gets interested in a young woman whose father is a German half-Jew. Yes, I mean... Eichmann may very well still be at large if not for uh, his son, Nicholas, uh, was dating a young woman named Sylvia Herman. And uh, Nicholas came over to her house and had a, was having dinner with the family and says that his father was a German officer and had traveled a lot during the war. Uh, and the Herman family had, had, large, had never really revealed that they were Jewish. Um, and, uh, living amongst Nazis living would be amongst, a good idea. That was Nazis. a fairly good idea. And so he says at dinner one time, boy, it's, it's too bad the Germans didn't finish off the Jews. And this, of course, takes Sylvia Herman and her father, Lothar Herman, who had lost his sight uh, mm. while imprisoned in a camp in Germany. Uh, quite, um, they were quite struck by it. The, the, the relationship ended, and a year later, Sylvia is reading a newspaper, uh, an Argentinian newspaper, and reading about this prosecutor in Germany, one of the few prosecutors, an individual named Fritz Bauer, who's going after certain Nazi war criminals. And one of those people on that list was Adolf Eichmann. And she reads the name to her father, and the connection is made. But, Eichmann's, but Eichmann is calling himself Ricardo Clement, and isn't that the name that his son uses as well, Clement? That's the problem. He did not have his, his uh, bizarrely, and to ultimately to... What ended up in his capture is his son went by the name of Nicholas Eichmann. Why in the world? And, and the, the first thing the Mossad did, basically, once they had him captured, they said, why in the world wouldn't you change your son's names? And he said, in, in classic Eichmann, um, totally straightforward and, and bluntly, why would I have my children lie for me? When, in fact, his, his children and his wife had been lying for, uh -huh. for decades. It's a fascinating story, and we're right in the middle of it. Or at any rate, once he's identified by uh, the Herman, Sylvia Herman, Sylvia Herman, and her, and, and with the uh, assistance of and with the interest of her father, they then do contact this fellow in Germany, or rather, how does that work? What's his name again? Block? Uh, Fritz Bauer. Bauer, rather. Right. So they write a letter. You know, and it takes several Directly lines. to Bauer. Directly yeah, to Bauer. that was it. Uh, and Bauer gets this letter. And Bauer, you have to understand, in Germany at this point, West Germany at this point, they weren't going after war criminals to, to, to a large degree. And he did not have much uh, means to go He was essentially him. the attorney general of the state of Hesse. Correct. Yes. And he himself is a half-Jew. 
He was he was a Jew, yes, and he uh, during the war he escaped to to Sweden, and eventually came back to Germany. And his whole legal philosophy was that, you know, you must uh, keep autocratic power away. Yeah. And uh, he thought that by unearthing the past, uh, that would prohibit it from repeating itself. We pick up the story at that very point, at that point when the Mossad, the newly formed Mossad, gets involved. And as we continue with Neil Bascom, right after an update on the news from Jim Goodis. And directly back to Neil Bascom, drawing from his new book, Hunting Eichmann. So now the plot thickens, or now it accelerates. In 1958, uh, the Fritz Bauer, informed by Lothar Hermann back in Argentina, uh, Bauer, the attorney general of the German state of Hesse, does contact the Mossad, or Israeli intelligence, whether it's Shin Bet or Mossad. And uh, they send somebody to chat with him. But they investigate on the ground, and they're persuaded this can't be Eichmann because he's living such a miserable life. Uh, a a high-ranking Nazi would be better off than that. Correct. So it takes two years before they get further evidence, which persuades them, yes, this probably is Eichmann. What do they then do? Then they send, and, and still at this point, I'm not quite sure that Isser Harrell was convinced because he ends up sending an interrogator, not an investigator, an interrogator named Zviya Haroni. He was the head of Shin Bet interrogation. Mm -hmm. and By the way, what's the distinction between Shin Bet and Mossad? The Shin Bet is, is internal security. It's like FBI. Uh, correct. Uh, a, a little more robust than the FBI, perhaps. Uh, and then the Mossad is, is foreign intelligence. Right. So they do send somebody else who confirms this is probably Eichmann. You just mentioned Isser Harel. He's the man at the center of the whole uh, abduction or apprehension operation. Who is he? He is both the, the head of the Mossad and head of Shin Bet. Uh, he was a, a Russian immigrant uh, and uh, participated in, in on, on minor levels of intelligence during the, the 1948 war. Uh, and made his way up rather quickly, <laughs> and by 1952-53, he's on his meteor is rising, and by 1960, he's head of both the Mossad and the Shin Bet. I mean, he was Israeli intelligence. One can almost see this as if it were a scene in a movie. He gathers a bunch of guys together, and he sits down and tells them all what they're now going to do, what the operation is. We've located Eichmann. We're going to grab him out of Argentina and bring him back to Israel to put him on trial. Uh, but it's going to be a very, very difficult operation. Uh, who are the people he gathers together for the operation? Well, he gathers, you know, it is a sort of a very classic spy story. He, he gathers a forger. He gathers a couple strongmen. Uh, he gathers an operations specialist. He gathers a, a manager. He gathers a front man who's sort of perfect at assuming identity. And a doctor to come along. A doctor and a woman to to act as as sort of the the wife of yeah. of the individual who rents the house. And what you have is this operation, and it's a small group of men uh, and and one woman, about ten in total. And they need to stage an operation that's first, it's 9,000 miles away from Israel. Uh, second, mm -hmm. it's against a, a notorious SS officer with a lot of experience in surveillance and, and has obviously lived under the radar for a long time. And it would be breaking the laws of, um, of Argentina to abduct him. Breaking the laws of Argentina. And Argentina, I would, I would not say, was, was necessarily friendly to an Israeli uh, mission within their country. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a large 
uh, expatriate uh, German community there. Uh, a lot of uh, Nazis had, had, had gone there as well. And you have the Peronist government and, and future governments that didn't look too grandly on Israel. How do they pull it off? It's a wonderful and quite detailed story. And uh, there are many, many uh, moments of great danger for the operation. You tell it all uh, brilliantly, and uh, it really is uh, one is on the edge of one's seat reading this uh, uh, account of it all. We can't get into all of the detail. <laughs> right. But what's the basic, um, the basic design of the operation? Well, first they have to, they find him, they locate him, they know where he is. Now they have to capture him. Then they have to detain him for they don't know how many days, and they have to secret him out of Argentina without anyone knowing. So it's a multi-layered operation. But the actual capture itself, they've gone and done about a month's worth of surveillance, and they followed him. They know every second of his day where he is. And they the bus he comes back on. The bus he comes back on, and they ultimately decide that his walk home from work, he comes home. And, and Eichmann was a man of routines, uh, even then. And his predictability, as I, as I say early in the book, made him vulnerable. And he came home every night at 7.40. And he walked on a dark street to his house, a small brick bunker of a house in a distant suburb without electricity or water. I mean, this is where Eichmann is living. And they decide that they're going to launch the capture there. Uh, and once they've got him, they've got a safe house, which they've rented. They're going to keep him there for a while, and then ultimately they're going to get him out on the first flight by El Al into Buenos Aires. Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of the story because, you know, all through this story, you have ordinary people involved in this, in this spy mission. Of course, you have the Mossad, and these individuals were experienced in this, this kind of work. But you have Sylvia Herman and her father investigating. You have Fritz Bauer committing treason to get to the Israelis. And then you have these El Al employees, these pilots, navigators, airline stewards, who are now involved in a mission to bring Eichmann home. And that's at a time when there was no regular El Al route uh, to Argentina. Correct. El Al did not fly to Buenos Aires. No, and there were, they had the great fortune of, of having the 150th anniversary of Argentinian independence from Spain occurring at the simultaneous to the mission. And so they staged a diplomatic flight. And they would drop they dropped off the diplomats and a day later they 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 staged the operation to bring Eichmann on board, dressed as an El Al employee, uh, and drugged, uh, nearly unconscious, and brought him onto the plane. Passed off as drunk. Yes. I mean, that is actually, that, that, that's one of the, um, Isser Harrell wanted his agents to act drunk, but actually, in speaking to them, they, they ended up saying, you know, we just ignored Harrell on this one of these few instances where they actually ignored him. But they had become so friendly with the airline people uh, that they just waved hello and brought him on. The man who uh, grappled Eichmann to the ground into a ditch on that darkened street in the Buenos Aires suburb, Peter Malkin. Yes, I mean, he was a, a, a bull of a man. He, you know, the night of the operation, he wore gloves because he because he had lost his family uh, in the Holocaust, and he couldn't physically touch this man. And that fellow, Peter Malkin, once sat in the chair that you're in right now, visited this program. He wrote a book about the capture of Eichmann, about his own life leading to that point. And um, 
it was in the mid-90s or thereabouts. Correct. And he did the book tour, and I had a fascinating two hours with him. Well, it's a just high honor. <laughs> just as I'm having with you at the moment. Yeah. yeah, I mean Peter Malkin is is one of one of the more interesting individuals. He was he was considered the strong man, uh, but, but he was, as I remember, a bull of a man. He was. Yeah. Yes, and and everyone there was only there was one other individual on the mission who was almost like a Frankenstein character. I mean, he was it was an, a massive individual who had hands the size of two baseball mitts. Uh, he was the only one that could take on Malkin, and Malkin was the one who was uh, tasked with grabbing Eichmann. And uh, that would have gone off according to plan, but right before they grabbed him, uh, one of the other agents thought that Eichmann had a gun as he was walking home, and this caused a, a, quite a fray. Uh, there's a fascinating passage in your book, which I'm going to ask you to read after we stop for some commercials. It's the first things that, the first dialogue between Eichmann and his captors after they get him to the safe house, and uh, we'll sample some of that after we pause for these words. And directly back to Neil Bascom, and uh, I'm asking you to read uh, a section which I've already indicated to you. This is really your account of the first conversations once they get him into the safe house. So beginning here, uh, at 9.15, Aharoni asked his first question. He was prepared for a long night. He had Eichmann's entire file mes memorized so that he never had to delay asking a follow-up question. What's your name, Aharoni asked in a com commanding tone. Ricardo Clement, the prisoner answered. What was your previous name? Otto Henninger. Aharoni grew tense. He had never heard the name, and the manner in which his subject was responding, coolly, credibly, surprised him. He changed tactics, deciding that only indirect questions would bring about a confession. Where was your son born? When was your son born? On March 22, 1942. What is his name? Dieter. How tall are you? 5 feet 8 inches. What is your size in shoes? 9. What size in shirt? 44. The answers came almost as quickly as the questions, and at this point they matched what Aharoni had in the file. The prisoner was not lying. What was the number of your membership card in the National Socialist Party? Aharoni asked, keeping up his rapid pace to prevent Eichmann from having any chance to prevaricate or attempt to deceive. 889-895, he said definitively and without pause. This was Eichmann's number. It was a critical admission, yet given as, as if Aharoni had asked for the color of his eyes. What was your number in the SS, Aharoni asked. 45326. Clement was Eichmann. It was a certainty. Now Aharoni wanted to hear him admit it. He looked across the bed at Shalom, the other Shinbet agent, who was equally anxious to hear the prisoner confess to his true identity. Then he continued. When did you come to Argentina? 1950. What is your name? Ricardo Clement. He was still resisting, but his hands were trembling slightly. He must have known that he revealed himself already with his party numbers. Was your SS number 45326, Aharoni asked. Yes. What's your date of birth? March 19, 1906. Where were you born? Solingen. Aharoni was there. He knew it. He asked firmly, under what name were you born? Adolf Eichmann. Joy swept over the team, and Aharoni and Shalom shook hands vigorously over the prisoner. Gott later described the moment as like the sun coming out at night. They had their man. A few seconds after his admission, Eichmann spoke again, this time in an ingratiating tone. You can quite easily understand that I'm agitated. I would like to ask for a little wine, if it's possible, red wine, to help me control my emotions. Aharoni replied that they would bring him something to drink. As soon as you had told me to keep quiet, there in the car, I knew I was in the hands of the Israelis, Eichmann continued. 
I know Hebrew. I learned it from Rabbi Leo Bach. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elakanu. Aharoni cut him off, refusing to listen to Adolf Eichmann say the holiest prayer in the Jewish religion, one recited in the morning and at night by the faithful. It was the prayer spoken at the hour of death, and millions of Jews had come to utter it because of Eichmann. Everybody left the room to calm their emotions and avoid attacking the prisoner. Fascinating stuff. It's curious as well that he says he learned his Hebrew from Rabbi Leo Beck. Leo Beck was the chief rabbi of Germany. Yes, and I, I probably pronounced it much like Eichmann did. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that Eichmann, you know, would constantly try to uh, ingratiate himself uh, to the Mossad agents. Oh, you mean you, you, mean you pronounced the, the Shema? Yes. Shema Yisrael Adashem Eloheinu. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and I probably pronounced it how Eichmann probably yeah. pronounced it. <laughs> I mean, he was, uh, you know, it was very clear quite soon that, that he did not know Hebrew or, or Yiddish or anything. Um, but that was his way to try to, to, to get the Mossad agents to, to like him. Now comes the trial. Uh, and here one needs some political background, or needs some background in terms of the thought of some of the leading figures in Israel, particularly um, the founding father of Israel, uh, who uh, more than anybody else uh, insisted on going forward with the trial. Yes, I mean, uh, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, um, had, knew very well, and what you have to understand is, is, is 50 years ago, people weren't speaking about what happened in the Holocaust. There weren't, there weren't you know, 10 movies uh, out mm -hmm. as we have today. Uh, the, the study, the historical study of the Holocaust was, was rather uh, uh, shallow, and, and particularly survivors did not speak about what happened. And it wasn't until the trial of Eichmann that this occurred. And this was the idea that David Ben-Gurion had. He thought that if he could bring Eichmann to trial and have witnesses testify to what occurred during the war, that he would first educate the young of Israel to, to why they needed a nation. Well, one curious thing there is that, of course, there had been a great trial in which a great deal of that material uh, was revealed, uh, and that's the Nuremberg trial or the Nuremberg trials, because there was more than the first one in which Goering uh, and, uh, and so many others were convicted and then sentenced to death. Uh, but uh, in, in that trial and in ones that succeeded, there was much about the Einsatzkommando operations and about the death camps, and many people confessed their roles and so on. Uh, and that all came before the Eichmann trial. Yes, that came before the Eichmann trial, but it was it was almost as if that was that was part of the war, and once the war... Uh, well, it was directly we, after the war. Right, it was directly in 1940, 45, 46, but, but what I'm saying is that, that directly after that, the, the study of what happened and the conversation mm -hmm. about what happened um, started to disappear. And you even had in West Germany at, at the time, you know, and I looked at these, at these textbooks where mm -hmm. there was almost nothing about what happened in, yeah. in, in the Holocaust. How did they stage the trial? They staged the, I mean, they brought Eichmann to Israel, and, you know, there was a worldwide uh, debate and fervor that, that the, the Israelis should not try Eichmann, that, that the West mm -hmm. Germans really had the right to try Eichmann, but uh, Ben-Gurion was going to have nothing to do with that. So he staged a, a trial uh, with Israeli judges, 
an Israeli prosecutor. Uh, but, you know, reading the transcripts of it and reading the, the history of how the trial began, it was a, a very proper trial. Would you like to hear uh, the prosecutor, Gideon Hausner, being interviewed uh, some years later? Well, being interviewed, in fact, I think in 1960 or shortly thereafter. Yes, 1966. I've got it right here. Um, on a radio station in New York City. Here is Hausner uh, talking in English, of course, about uh, how they, the problems they had in setting the trial up, the difficulty in getting people to directly and openly tell their stories. To speak to these people, to these uh, tongue-tied people uh, with whom you lose very often the touch because they are not, they are not able to, be, to put into words into, into proper shape going through hell. They'll never be again the same they were before uh, uh, Hitler uh, came there and before uh, the roof caved in on them. Uh, there is something traumatic in their makeup which will never be good again. And when you speak to them and you ask them to recount events, well, up to a point, they are logical and uh, coherent. You understand everything. But from a certain point, you just, you, you, you talk through, through a fog. You lose contact. <clears throat> and to bring these people to tell the story, very often they would say, oh, leave me alone. It comes anyway, often enough in my nightmares. Why do I have to go there into full limelight and, and be cross-examined? Well, I don't know. I don't want to do it. And then we had uh, to persuade them as their duty. Sometimes it was the other way around. The fellow came along and would say, I'll tell you the whole story from the beginning to end. You don't need any more witnesses on this particular episode or place or time. I'll tell you all about Well, we didn't want one person to tell it all because we wanted to bring a very wide cross-section of the people to tell the story. And that's why I brought uh, uh, judges and writers and, and housewives and manual laborers, uh, people from all walks of life who were there, who happened to be there, and everyone in his own language, from his own aspect, was telling what happened to him at some particular time, uh, which we wanted to be told. And each of these had to be in relation to orders issued by Adolf Eichmann. He was the man on of trial. Of course. Uh, each one of them had to tell the effect of one of his activities, of one of the papers he signed, which uh, each one of them was tantamount to a death sentence for a thousand people or two thousand people. Just in order to carry a train from uh, Drancy to Auschwitz with uh, 2,400 deportees, I'm quoting from memory, uh, was a death order for 2,400 people. Signed by him. Signed by him, yes. So, of course, we brought, say, Professor George Villers of uh, the Sorbonne University today, who was in Drancy, who was on this train, to tell how it was, how it looked, what it meant in human terms, this deportation order signed by a bureaucrat at his writing desk in Berlin. Had you ever heard that before? I hadn't heard that particular interview, but yeah. I, you know, in the book, I, I actually bookend the, the story with an individual who, his name's Zvi Sapir, and he was a survivor from Hungary, and he testified at the trial. 
we will return to conversation with Neil Bascom, uh, and we'll hear a small excerpt from the trial itself uh, when we continue. Right now, to the newsroom for a full update from Jim Goodis. And we return uh, directly to Neil Bascom and continuing to draw from his excellent new book, Hunting Eichmann. We come to the trial itself, and in this, uh, we've already heard from the prosecutor just now in that recorded excerpt, but tell us more about the setup. So the trial, basically what they did was they, they brought Eichmann in, they interrogated him for, for quite some time, and and began gathering evidence uh, throughout the world. And one of the key places they actually gathered evidence was from one of the early hunters of, of this story, which is Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, I've been here for, forever, you know, on this radio <laughs> program, and Shimon Wiesenthal was on this program twice in the old twice. days. Twice. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that, you know, his role in this story, you know, he wasn't instrumental in the capture, but he was instrumental in gathering evidence uh, on Eichmann, uh, as were several other individuals. And so they gather all this evidence, and, and then they begin this trial uh, where, where Gideon Hausner um, brings Eichmann forward and, and for almost a whole day uh, reads out a list of in indictments against him for war crimes and for, for crimes across <laughs> Europe, everywhere from, from the top down. And it is a, a withering indictment. And he responds to each count with the phrase, in the terms of the indictment, not guilty. Not guilty, yes, which was the same uh, phrase that, that Goring used uh, yeah. during the Nuremberg trials. And, of course, his basic defense is, they made me do it. His basic defense, and, and, I was he, following and he never wavered uh, throughout the trial uh, that he was following orders. And he would, <laughs> he would speak, and, and if, you, if you read the transcripts, he'll, he would go on for, for paragraphs and twist and turn, but at the very end, he would inflate what he did, but inflate his role within the Nazi party, and at the same time say, I'm not responsible. The, uh, the judges, and there's a lot of video coverage of this, or the thing was filmed, and it's available. You can find some of it on YouTube. Um, and uh, the judges remain calm, and they don't berate him. They, don't, they treat him with a certain courtesy. He's in that glass booth to protect them from others who might otherwise shoot at him with two Israeli guards standing behind him always. Uh, and, uh, but there's one moment, at least, where the, uh, the chief judge loses his patience. And uh, we're going to play this little passage. It's in German. The judges all speak German, and they speak German to him. And he responds. Uh, but um, the chief judge at one point says, you know, really? You're just using the defense of Pontius Pilate. You're saying, you wash your hands or your hands are clean. <laughs> Eichmann says, yes, that is the point. My hands are, in fact, clean. Uh, because in the terms of the indictment, I am innocent. I was just following orders. I love my country, and so on. Here it is. This is in German. It's fascinating. But, but that's the basic content. And if you do or don't hear no German, uh, you'll catch at least the, ref the reference to Pontius Pilate. Habt ihr immer verstanden, dass das Händewaschen von Pontius Pilatus auf einen inneren Vorgang sich bezieht? Da darf ich eben drauf kommen, da wollte ich eben drauf kommen, Herr Richter. Ich sage ich mir, ja, ich habe alles getan, was ich konnte. Ich äh, bin ein äh, Werkzeug stärkerer Kräfte gewesen. Ich, ich möchte es mal jetzt wohl wer sagen, ich muss meine Hände für mich, für mein Inneres in Unschuld waschen. So möchte ich das verstehen. 
das dreht sich bei mir nicht so sehr um den äußeren Paragraphen, sondern um meine Selbstbetrachtung. Nun, was das Händewaschen vom Jahr 1942 anlangt, das war eine Art Mentalreservation. 42? Wannsee, bei der Wannsee-Konferenz. Ah, Wannsee-Konferenz. Ja. Das war eine Art Mentalreservation. The reference at the end, where you wash, have you washed your hands also of what you said and did at the Wannsee conference, where the full plan for exterminating all the Jews of Europe, as soon as they can get their hands on them, and even at the Wannsee conference, there's one passage where, um, indeed, it is Eichmann who reminds uh, Reinhard Heydrich, there are also the Jews of America. And Heydrich says, yes, and they're on the list too, when we get there. Yes, and, and like I said earlier, that's the point where he says, you know, the Pope's and the popes are Heydrich and, and Himmler. Yeah. They've given their orders, and so I can do what I want, and I can execute my mission, which is to eliminate the Jews. Hmm. You, uh, he was, of course, convicted. <clears throat> and uh, he remained sort of uh, stolid and uh, uh, almost inexpressive of deep emotion. Though he, he, he shakes a bit at times. But basically, he's trying to handle himself with military correctness, I guess. But towards the end, he's making all sorts of pleas for mercy. Yes, I mean, he makes, uh, he appeals the decision, uh, and the, the appeal is, is, is turned down. Uh, and that's really, you know, one of the few times where he showed emotion. And, you know, you can see the sweat on his brow, and you can see, you know, his face be would seize up, mm -hmm. almost uh, as if someone was pulling the side of his mouth and would paralyze itself. And if you actually watch the, the trial, and, and one of the things that Ben-Gurion did was have this trial televised, it was on radio, it was in every newspaper, and, and the idea, again, is to try to get the world to see what happened. Uh, and you see Eichmann basically falling apart at that point. His actual end is, uh, is strange. Was, well, it's notable, the way they handle his end. They do hang him after a number of appeals and after they're all been denied. And then they come in and tell him, the last appeal has been denied and we're hanging you tonight. Yes, there was no long preparation period for him. He asked for a bottle of wine and a pack of cigarettes. He drank the bottle of wine. He was continuing to smoke his cigarettes. Uh, and they brought him, uh, you know, it was within the prison. They had cut the floor. They had cut a hole in the floor. They didn't have a... Uh, any procedure for hanging people. Well, he this is, is the, the first time in Israel that, that the first, death penalty has the first been executed. And only the first time, and only time yeah. to this day. Correct. And he goes and 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 puts his head in the noose and, and essentially says, long live Germany, and, and that's it. And they burn him, that is, they, they incinerate him, cremate him, and uh, his very end is on a little boat out uh, six or more miles uh, east of Tel Aviv. I mean, there was, there was definitely some poetic justice to how uh, he, was, he was executed and, and his remains were, were spread in the ocean. I mean, the, he was cremated by an individual who had survived Auschwitz and who had actually operated the ovens. Um, and, you know, they didn't have any facility for, for, for burning individuals, so they created that. And then they brought him out on a boat and scattered his ashes. And the reason they did that is they didn't want any place, any memorial, or any site for people to be able to congregate at. 
uh, to pay respects to this uh, hideous monster. A strange aftermath was something you've already mentioned, namely the book by Hannah Arendt, titled Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, she uh, was then, uh, and remains after her death quite a number of years ago, uh, one of the great political, modern political philosophers. Uh, and, uh, and the book became very controversial. It makes some very interesting, troubling points, not only about Eichmann, but also about how the Jews went to their slaughter in the years of the Holocaust. And we might talk about that just a bit as an aftermath to the trial. When we return after these words, and we return to Neil Bascom. I was just reminding myself, and some of that may have gone over the air, but let's do it directly. There's something we, we left out. You mentioned it earlier. I didn't give you a chance to develop it. Uh, one way to demonstrate that Eichmann wasn't just a passive uh, uh, follower of orders, just executing the will of those above him, whose uh, servant he was, uh, is his behavior in Budapest. Do explain that particular chapter in his life. Right. Well, he goes into Budapest, and there's 725,000 uh, Hungarian Jews. And over the course of from from 1944 through you know the early spring 1945, he's when the jig is almost up. When the jig is up, and yeah. he's eliminated most of the Hungarian Jewish population. And as the war is obviously coming to a close, and it's and and various Nazi leaders are trying to negotiate for peace. Mm. They and the Russians are rolling towards And Budapest. the Russians are coming, and, and there's really nothing, no reason to continue these operations. Eichmann's superiors tell him, stop. We need these Jew, Jewish, we need the Jewish population to, to broker peace. And Eichmann ignores these orders, largely, and goes and, and marches the, the, Buda, the Jews from Budapest uh, to Austria in this horrific death march. Uh, with no food, no clothing, basically, and and it was Himmler who who had to rein Eichmann in, and so when you talk of the banality of evil uh, that that Hannah Arendt uh, refers to, you must look at this scene and mm -hmm. and see that Eichmann was going far past his orders and was reprimanded by Himmler for doing so. But he was hell bent to kill all the Jews he could before they stopped him. Yes, I mean at this point, you know the the phrase. You know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts mm -hmm. absolutely. Eichmann had had the Jewish the Jewish population in these countries in his hands, and by this point, his any sense of, of morality or, or ethics or, or compassion are eliminated, and his sole purpose is to kill. Back to uh, the aftermath of the trial and Hannah Arendt's book. Uh, uh, why the review briefly what she says in that book. There are two main points she makes. One about Eichmann, one about the Jews uh, of the Holocaust uh, time. Uh, and then when, when you review that, it'll be clear why that stirred a lot of uh, anger and a lot of debate. I mean, the, the first thing about Eichmann was, is she said, you know, again, repeating the phrase in the book's title, but the banality of evil. And what she essentially is saying is that, is that he was a tool of the autocratic regime. And that that he didn't have the, the the smarts or the will to to be perpetrating these crimes. This is all a systematic. Uh, and as she sits there in the courtroom looking at him, what she sees is uh, a, a little bourgeois man of no significance. Yes. How is you know it? it not it, capable of. Initiative. Not capable. And yeah. that's you know it, what's curious is that's what the Mossad thought too when they captured yeah. him. Yeah. They you know Isser Harel 
says uh, in, in his autobiography, how could this miserable little runt of a man be responsible for the genocide of my people? And that's who Hannah Arendt saw uh, in the booth, mm -hmm. or that's how she simplified, I think, uh, what she saw in the booth. And so that was her perspective that anyone could, could be, this may be taking it too far, but anyone could be an Eichmann uh, within a certain regime. Maybe, though, there's something to that. The fact is we've had a lot of genocide since then. And you get uh, apparently almost ordinary people drawn up into doing the murders. And after a while, it becomes routine. After a while, they compete with one another for who does it mo most efficiently. You, you know the book by Chris Browning, Ordinary Men? Yes. About the, uh, uh, the uh, police battalion from Hamburg. Uh, I, uh, what's... Uh, Ordnungsbataillon 101. Uh, and they're just, they're ordinary guys. And they're assigned to go uh, into villages and round up the Jews and kill them. But at first, a few of them protest. And uh, the, the colonel who's commanding them, a reserve colonel, is so upset that he gets drunk. And a, a lesser, a younger officer has to take over and lead the men into doing this. But after a few weeks, they're competing with one another as to who does it best. And they're inviting their girlfriends or wives to come uh, visit them and join in the operation. And the, it's, it's all about is given in Browning's title, Ordinary Men. Right. And, you know, what's curious is that just reading the, the newspapers today, uh, you know, the, the trial of the Khmer Rouge in uh -huh. Cambodia, and there's articles about these, these prison guards who, you know, would use a, a metal rod um, to kill their prisoners. And their argument today is that they would have been shot if they didn't follow on these orders. But then you, you see from other uh, evidence that, yes, that may have been the beginning, but at the end of the Khmer Rouge, these individuals were doing that with, without any um, threat to their yeah. life. There's a great ambiguity there that remains uh, a great mystery. It has to do with the degree to which evil is inherent in all of us uh, to be activated under certain special circumstances. Um, or you might argue the opposite. You might take the Rousseauian view that we're intrinsically we're born good, right. but the world ultimately corrupts us. Uh, the other great issue raised by the uh, Arendt book, of course, is uh, her accusation against the Jews of the Holocaust period. And, and her, largely her accusation there is that, is that the Jews um, did, did not resist, and in some ways they were, they were complicit in, in, in what happened to them. And Eichmann followed the orders, killed them, and they followed the order, line up and be killed. Yes, exactly. And that, of course, was uh, an argument that, that caused, you know, a, a major uh, schism uh, and, and I think continues to be argued today. Uh, you know, who was complicit? Uh, was it the Judenrat, uh, the leaders of, of the Jewish councils? Uh, what was their role? Um, but, you know, studying what Eichmann did and, and how he deceived the Jewish community, you can see um, that he, he, got, he, he organized his operations in such a way that by the time the Jewish population was ready to resist, it was too late. Uh, he deceived them in, in such ways by, you know, uh, individuals who took the train to Auschwitz were writing cards to their families uh, saying they're, you know, they're on a, a nice, pleasant trip. It's even in the slogan over the entrance to Auschwitz-Birkenau, Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. Correct. And, and many people thought that they were just going to, to a work camp. I mean, you know, the Hungarian uh, 
Jewish population, the individual Ziv Sapir, who bookends uh, my story, he thought he was being sent to work work camp. He thought he was told by the Germans that they had come to round him up to protect him from the Russians. It's time to invite telephone calls. We'll get to them right after we do the news break at around 10:30. But we're opening the lines right now. The number, of course, five nine one seven two zero zero. Five nine one seventy two hundred. Three one two is the area code. And if you want to reach us via email, that's also uh, easily available. The email address, extension 720, as one word, extension 720, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. That or 591-7200. Get your calls and emails in. We'll be with you shortly. Uh, for the few minutes we've got before we stop for some uh, for the newscast and then on to the calls and emails, uh, a little bit more about uh, these the men of the great Mossad team. You've met a few of them who still survive. Yes, uh, Rafi Aitan, uh, Avraham Shalom. And Aitan was the leader of the group. Aitan was the number two man. Uh, uh, Harel was the leader. Yeah, what's interesting is that Harel, the, the head of the Israeli Secret Service, is in Argentina for this whole mission. Yeah. And basically you have the number one, two, three, four, five top guys within the Mossad on, on this operation. If for any reason it went amiss, you would have devastated Israeli intelligence. Mm. And that's how important this mission was that Ben-Gurion had, had assigned. What I would, you know, it was a, it was a great honor and pleasure to, to, to meet these, these guys. And, and what I got from them most significantly was just their, their calm in, in how they talk about these activities. I mean, they were risking their lives. They were in this country, uh, in Argentina. And they speak of it as if they're talking about how they made their way to the grocery store um, that day. I mean, they 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 were so used to that those kind of missions. It's just remarkable. Well, most of them probably had lots of other fabulous missions that we don't know about. Yes, and the Mossad is not terribly open about uh, their operations, and this is the one of the few they've actually been uh, open to revealing to me. What happened to some of the principal? What happened to Peter Malkin, the fellow? Uh, that I did meet who was on this program once. He was also an artist, apparently. Malkin was, Malkin actually ended up becoming the head of operations of the Mossad. Uh, at the time, he was was just a member, but became head of operations. But simultaneous to that, he pursued a, a career mm -hmm. in art. And actually, while he was on the mission, he did some paintings of, of Eichmann and of the various Mossad agents and the houses they stayed at. And, and ended up publishing those in a, in a actually rather beautiful book of, of art. What about some of the others? You have Rafi Aitan, who had a long... Uh, he's still with us. He's, he's still with us. Uh, he is uh, head of the Pensioners Party in, in Israel. He, the man in his mid-80s or thereabouts. He's in his mid-80s. He you know, continues to be quite busy. He at one point was the head of the Yaman military intelligence. Um, so he's had a, a rather active career. Uh, Abraham Shalom, who was was an individual who also became head of the um, Shin Bet, um, I also met, spent a lot of time with. And, you know, one of the things that I remember most from him is he said, look at me, look at my face. This is why I was good at my job. 20 minutes from now, you will forget what I look like. And an hour later, really, I, I tried to... to to write to myself what he looked like, and he was right. And and that's why he said he was able to be so good at his mm -hmm. job. I mean, all, all the, I, I have very fond memories, and, and also meeting all the LL people. 
the navigators like Shaul Shaul, who, you know, when they left the country, when they, when they spirited Eichmann out, the airplane was stopped on the tarmac, and they had Eichmann, and they were told they couldn't go on. And Shaul Shaul, just a navigator, never participated in an operation, says, I will go. I will talk to them. And Issa Harrell and the pilot says, if you're not back in 10 minutes, that's it. We're leaving without you. And he remembers telling me that was, you know, how his, his stomach fell into his feet as he stepped off that plane. But he did it because of this operation of how significant it was to bring Eichmann home. It's a fabulous story. Back to Israel. And the story is wonderfully told in the new book, Hunting Eichmann by Neil Bascom. That's published by Houghton Mifflin. And we'll be right on to your calls for Neil Bascom. 5917200 or emails extension 720 at tribune.com after an update on the news from Paula Cooper. And we go directly back to uh, Neil Bascom. We are drawing from his book, Hunting Eichmann. Let's give the full subtitle at least once more. How a band of survivors and a young spy agency chased down the world's most notorious Nazi. Published by Houghton Mifflin. And I may testify with full candor. It's wonderfully written. It's very, very uh, gripping and uh, quite suspense-laden. And at the same time, you learn a great deal about some very interesting, some of them very attractive people, and at least one very unattractive person. Absolutely. 591-7200 is the number. We'll go directly to the phones and to Abner in Elmhurst. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, thank you. Uh, two things. I was the I was a guard at the Nuremberg trials, and I was sergeant of the guard when Goering committed suicide. Good Lord, really! Wow. So I knew all the prisoners. We were not allowed to speak to them, but uh, I knew them all, and uh, uh, was part of that. I was with the first division, the 26th Infantry Division. My goodness! I was uh, 20 years old at that point. I entered the army when I was 17. And uh, then on a later date, my, my son lived in Buenos Aires, and he called me one day. He said, and I was, a, I was one of the liberators of the Buchenwald death camp. So I, I had experience seeing the Holocaust firsthand. Uh, my, uh, my, so we went, my wife and I went to Buenos Aires, and I spoke at the school in which my son was attending, and the next day he called me and said, there's a woman who wanted to speak to you. So we went to her office, and when we walked in, she looked at me, and she started to cry. And she said, uh, she spoke English, she said, you reminded me of something which I had forgotten. My grandfather lived on a, on a farm outside of, in a suburb outside of Buenos Aires, and he had a neighbor, and I used to go to, when I go to visit my grandfather when I was younger, she was a woman about 35, she said, I would play in his yard. He was a very nice man, and I would play in his yard. And then I didn't see I got older, and I went to college, and I came back, went to see my grandfather, and I said, I'm going to go over and see Senor so-and-so who lives next door. And my grandfather said, no, you can't go. And she said, what do, you mean, what do you mean I can't go? I want to go see him. He was a nice man. I want to talk to him and say hello to him. And my grandfather said, he's not there. He was taken away, and that man was Adolf Eichmann. And she was beside herself. She said, I didn't know, I didn't know. You know, we had no idea uh, who he was. and uh, So it was very traumatic for her as well as for me and my son. But uh, 
that's my story. And well, it's a fascinating story. Indeed, so fascinating. I'd like to be in touch with you further, sir. Well, well I, I speak at schools all over the United, all you know, over listen, Omaha, um, Wisconsin. I'd like to turn you over to our, our producer, Zach Christensen, uh, and uh, I wish you'd give him your full name and some contact numbers, all right? Sure. Good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, Zach, take care of that, if you would, please. And uh, we'll go to the next caller on five nine one seven two double zero to Joe in Lockport. Good evening. Good evening. I'm sure this is, uh, or maybe covered in the book, but how did this group even slip into the country? And then it dawned on me after I asked the question to get on, how did they even function? Because they spent weeks uh, observing Eichmann. How did they even function? Because they must have stood out as uh, foreigners in this country, didn't they? Well, I mean, that, that was... They, they, they arrived in, in Buenos Aires under a number of different uh, disguises and passports, uh, a lot of actually, curiously, under German passports. Uh, they came into the country. And then they, they disbanded. They all lived at uh, or stayed at different hotels and or safe houses that they had rented from, from Jewish individuals uh, within the city. Oh, I see. But they, you know, uh, you're absolutely correct, though. I mean, it is, it, you know, what they were able to achieve and, and how they were able to do it with, with almost no technological sophistication. The way they met, actually, was through Isser Harel going to a different cafe every single hour of every single day the whole time he was there. And they knew where he would be, and that's how they coordinated uh, the operation. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir, for the call. Here's an interesting and quite appropriate email I want to read to you. How fortuitous that you are discussing Eichmann on the day that Jews celebrate the salvation from his predecessor in Jew hatred, Haman of Persia. Today uh, is, of course, Purim. Uh, that's the nature of that holiday. Eichmann met the same end as Haman uh, of the Gallows. Uh, hopefully, we will soon see the end of, the, of Persia's present Haman. Reference to Ahmadinejad. <laughs> uh, I was fascinated by this story as a young woman when I read The House on Garibaldi Street. How does this book differ from that one? Thank you so much for your wonderful program. I'm a longtime fan, Rochelle, and I thank you, Rochelle, for those kind words. Uh, the book, The House on Garibaldi Street. Yes, that's uh, actually Isser Harrell's memoir, and it's a it's mm. a quite good memoir. I mean, the reason that I that I thought that there was there could be a contribution here to history was that there have been three or four memoirs by the different Mossad agents, but there hasn't actually in 50 years been a journalistic historical account that takes into effect. Every Mossad member who was involved in the operation, as well as every El Al member who was involved in the operation, as well as the archives and the, and the story. So I was, I feel like I was able to tell the the whole story instead of the story from just one single individual. Um, another email, uh, please ask the author: Did the evil he uncovered cause him to lose faith, if he had any, in humanity? But, I mean, that's a, that's a profoundly good question. I. I, you know, my experience in writing this book has been uh, difficult, um, particularly the times when I was reading Eichmann's memoirs. I mean, there's about 3,000 pages of it, um, and as I, you know, my German isn't perfect, so it so it took me a long time, and uh, there were many sleepless nights uh, trying to deal with what what was there. And when does he write? Thought. When does he write those memoirs? He wrote, you know, first you have the Sassen memoirs, the ones we, uh, the referred, ones to we referred to earlier, and then Which he wrote... Which dictates to his Dutch friend. Correct. And and there's, there's you know, 70 or 80 tapes mm -hmm. of that. 
And then you also have he wrote a memoir between uh, before the trial, and then he wrote a memoir after the trial. So you're talking, you know, several thousand pages, and almost ex exclusively about his participation during the war. So you can see how just obsessive. What does what what does he reveal? That's what's so curious. I mean, it is 3,000 pages of basically saying virtually the same thing uh, that he ultimately reveals at the trial. It, it chronicles his activities and, and who he participated with, but there's, there's almost no admission of being, you know, the one who's, you know, signing the orders or, or making this happen. But does he go into the particulars of special sectors of his work? Does he go into particulars concerning this or that uh, uh, train sent off to Auschwitz uh, and the people on it and so on? Yeah, I mean, he goes into what he did in various countries and who were who were key players in it and, and what, you know, how they went about their business. How does he account for that particular time in, uh, in Budapest that we were talking about earlier, when he goes beyond orders and kills them when even Himmler is saying stop? Largely ignored. He doesn't write about yeah, it? Yeah, doesn't write about it, mm -hmm. which is which is very interesting. I mean, yeah. at that point in time, you know, he had, had gone, uh, you know, so far off the end. Uh, I think it's it's probably a, a you know, and people re recount uh, meeting Eichmann at that point, and he was ultimately very paranoid at that time. He was drinking a great deal. His hands, they said, were constantly shaking uh, during these last periods in, in 1945. Yeah. Hmm. There's a line in Macbeth. I forget... I just I have it in isolation. I don't have uh, what follows it. But he says, I am so far steeped in blood. He goes on to say, therefore, I'm going to go on killing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and there's there's actually a line from, from Eichmann's memoirs where he says, um, you know, qu quite something different. He says, you know, I'm, I'm tired of being an aimless wanderer. And he's almost revealing that he, that he wants to be caught. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, he says, but that would do disservice to the people and to, to Germany. Does he, in his memoirs, still hold Hitler and Himmler and Heydrich, for that matter, in special uh, admiring regard? In, 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 in great, you know, unvarnished esteem. Hmm. And it was actually, you know, the, the, the people, the people he really goes after, the people who weren't uh, fervent enough in their anti-Semitism and in their, um, uh, you know, conviction of following orders. It's oh, sickening. I mean, you know, to that caller's point, you yeah. know, you read enough of this, and it does, it does wither mm. your sense of humanity. The man was a real piece of work. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. We pause the last round of commercials, then right back to the phones and the email. One or two lines available if you've been trying to reach us. Five nine one seven two zero zero three one two. Then 591-7200 for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. Right back to Neil Bascom and directly back to your calls forum. And the next one up, Dave in Woodridge. Good evening, sir. Good evening, gentlemen. Great show tonight. I cannot wait to pick up the book and read it. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I just had a couple quick questions, kind of all related. Um, was there any kind of a, a precedent in the court of, of world law for this to happen, or did Israel kind of act cavalierly, capture their man, put him on trial, and then, as you said, one night, okay, now we're going to have to hang you? I mean, were there any other countries that were trying to stop this, and were there any repercussions to Israel after this happened? 
I mean, it was it was a rather novel approach to international law, I have to say that. Uh, but uh, Ben Gurion had decided through speaking to his attorney generals that that this is something that they could, um, you know, there was there was a legal reason to do it. Uh, but the repercussions of it actually were fairly fairly large. I mean, Argentina uh, went to the United Nations and and had ultimately the United Nations condemned Israel for the action, uh, and there was a you know a flurry of of criticism. Uh, particularly um, from West Germany about West Germany being the ones who should try Eichmann because Eichmann was, in fact, a German citizen. Were they condemned because they captured him or condemned because they executed him? You know, it's a, it's, it's, it was most of the, of the, of the fever about, about what the Israelis did occurred directly after Ben-Gurion announced uh, to the Knesset that, that he had been captured. Uh, at the point where he was being executed, um, there was less of that, but but there were even you know individuals uh, you know high level individuals within um, you know different Jewish organizations that that thought that the death penalty was something that they should not do. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much, and I look forward to reading the book. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you, you, sir, for the call. And directly to the next, uh, Mel in Mount Prospect. Good evening. Good evening. Great show. I uh, I was just curious that. Uh, the author uh, get a chance to interview any of uh, any of his relatives, his children, or his wife. Well, I don't know if his wife would still be alive, but I'm just wondering about that. that uh, if they if he did, what was would they talk to him? You know? Yes, I mean what you know. I uh, his his wife passed away years ago, but I attempted. You know, he has four sons. He actually had another son while he was in Argentina. I did contact him, and we corresponded by email. But he's lar he has, has completely disavowed his father and his actions, the youngest son, uh, who was, was born in the early 50s. Uh, but the, the three other, the older sons who came to Argentina from Germany, um, they do not speak of it. Uh, one, you cannot find them, and he's reportedly a neo-Nazi leader in Argentina. Uh, and, then, and then the two other sons, Nicholas and, uh, and Dieter, I believe, uh, live on the German-Austrian border. And we've, we've contacted, I contacted, contacted them several times. But uh, yeah, been, one did, more question. Hold on a second. Did they respond to you? Did they yes, they, uh, you know, we spoke on the phone, and, mm -hmm. and the response on the phone was, that's the past. Uh -huh. Yes, sir, go ahead, please. Yes, uh, last question. When, the, when they uh, interrogated uh, Eichmann, did they, uh, yeah, I assume they did, questions about the whereabouts of other Nazis, such as Mengele or Bormann? They brought up during the interrogation. Yes, I mean, one of the first questions they asked Eichmann after capturing him, beyond what was, was read to you, was, where's Mengele? Okay. And uh, they actually launched, uh, uh, Isser Harel uh, had a location for him and launched a mission to seize him on this particular mission, and uh, they eventually, uh, they did not find him. Terrific. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Um, Mengele, in fact, um, died by natural causes, not in bed, but in a, a drowning accident? Yes, he drowned um, and uh, in, the, in the late 70s, I believe, yeah. and a drowning. And that's, yes, I mean, I may have my, my conspiracy theories about whether or not he actually drowned, uh, oh. but, but they're unsupported, so uh, I won't go into them. Oh, go ahead. Go into it only <laughs> briefly. Well, it just seems very, very odd to me that, that, that he would drown on a, on a, a morning um, that was supposed to be rather calm waters in, in the ocean. But, um, but again, you know, particularly 
the Mossad, and I'm not saying the Mossad did it. I don't know who uh, or if anyone did it, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it just seems to me a little skeptical. You know um, Spielberg's film, Munich. Yes. Um, what is that based on? Because there you got the Mossad seeking revenge for the the killers at, at Munich uh, at the time of the Olympics when the Israeli squad was decimated by them. Right, and and that that is that story, and I haven't actually, you know, the the name of the book is is eluding me, but it was based on a series of of, of different books about uh -huh. about the Mossad's uh, uh, operation, and there was a lot of controversy about what or if anything uh, was was true. Um, in in these books as well as necessarily the movie, mm -hmm. um, but but that's generally how it works. I've, I've got an email here, uh, sort of relevant to that, which uh, says, uh, "Are there any Nazis still alive, and are they still being sought? They would be very very old, and to some extent, time is running out to catch them." You know uh, what's in the headlines right now, and it's a it's a fascinating story. Um, there was a, a doctor named Heim. Who was was called Doctor Death, uh, and he did uh, he was a Nazi doctor in the in the camps, and he did hideous experiments. The same role as Mengele. The same role as Mengele, yeah. exactly. And the uh, the Wiesenthal Foundation had just uh, staged a what's called Operation Last Chance to find him, and they thought he was in Chile, and it just was uncovered uh, several weeks ago uh, that he had uh, actually died um, in in Egypt. Um, uh, in 1992, I believe, mm. and there there are some uh, even even Zuroff, uh, who's the head of of looking for uh, war criminals, doesn't quite believe yet that that he's dead because be, there there is no body. And could it could be a cover story. It could yeah. be. It, it absolutely could be a cover yeah. story. Mm. Back to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero. The number as we go to Rich here in Chicago. Good evening. Hi there. Tremendously interested in this topic. Uh, as a matter of fact, I went to the library the other day to get your book, uh, but they didn't have it yet, obviously. <laughs> but I did find Great several time. of the books that you've cited in the conversation tonight. And this may be a strange question, but sh should I, you know, read uh, some of those other books as an introduction to yours, or or vice versa? Well, I, as the author, uh, would of course say buy uh, buy or go to the library and get mine first. But I think you know. <laughs> Uh, the house on Garibaldi Street is a is a is a very good um, uh, story uh, or, or memoir by Isser Harrell, and you know I I base some of what I write about from that. But what I've been able to do, as I mentioned earlier, was was encapsulate all the different Mossad individuals, and I think you know from that angle was able to tell a little bit more of a of an objective story. Terrific. Well, I can't wait to get your book. Thank you. Well, thank you, sir. Here's an email uh, forwarded to me by uh, a friend of ours in Sydney, Australia, and um, that is uh, uh, this is from Mike Zarb, who has communicated often, and he is forwarding an email from uh, a friend of his okay. uh, named Robin. I've never heard from Robin before, but he says the following, uh, listening to Rosenberg, very interesting and compelling subject. Imagine what a taut, suspenseful movie or play could be made about the capture and trial of Eichmann. Did you hear how Eichmann recited Deuteronomy 6.12? That's the Shema, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Halo Israel, or Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The same prayer found in every mezuzah scroll on every Jewish doorpost. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
I mean, this does, you know, there have actually been a, a couple of uh, television movies of, of this story, um, uh, which are which are fairly compelling. We'll work in one or two more quick calls. Here is Jerry on the north side. Uh, hello. Yes, uh, back when this uh, trial was going on, uh, the newspapers, I think, said that the objection the German government had uh, to this, uh, him being tried there, was not that he was a German citizen. Uh, that doesn't, uh, isn't... Uh, tell where you're to be tried, but rather that the crimes, that the victims were largely Germans, and particularly the things that he did wrong were uh, done in Germany, and they were violations of the German laws of the day, and uh, that, uh, they, their position has long been that most of what was done, uh, of, of this kind of thing, were uh, in violate by the government was and officials, was done in violation of the laws they were uh, pledged, of course, to uphold and enforce. Well, that, the, the law that prevailed at the time was the Nazi law. Well, they had their laws. That, they had some, made some changes, but they hadn't made those changes. They never uh, made those things legal, I understand. Uh, rather, the, the, uh, the officials had authority to order people around, but they, uh, these were still violations of their laws. I they see where they might be. Yeah, to be sure, the, Nor well, the Nuremberg Laws did exist, which exiled Jews and essentially pushed them out of uh, any kind of role in German society. But... They had not written laws ordering genocide, had they? They did. The Germans have laws that they, ordered it. No, they, they did not. They did yeah. not, of course. And actually, you know, in fact, they thought they were keeping it secret. No, that was the point was to keep it secret. And the West Germans, you know, another the the a real issue that was brought up about whether it was legally justified for the Israelis to do it is because Israel wasn't a state when these actions were committed. That was that is a, a legal argument that you could make, uh, but. But the one that you mentioned, I'm, I'm not quite sure holds water. Yeah. My, uh, my reaction, if I may indulge myself or reveal myself, is hoo-ha. Uh, I think of my, th my 300 or so relatives who perished in the Holocaust, people I never knew, but members of the extended families from which my two parents, who are immigrants, came uh, in the years before the war. And uh, <laughs> legal issues of that sort, I think, are... Just not not worthy of They're, mentioning. They are not to be seriously entertained. There is a higher law, one might say. There is. A fascinating book that you've done. Quite different from some of your other work. It, it was, uh, you know, I w what this book means to me. You know, I, I've been thinking about doing it for about 15 years, so it was it was tremendous to to write it. And it has left some effect. It has altered your sense of. Um, the intrinsic nobility of the human race. It has, but it's also it's also led me to 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 really passionate believe that 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 you can't forget and that and that justice mm -hmm. must be sought, 50 years later, 100 years later, uh, not only for the victims but also for the future of our society. I've um, I value this book. I'm taking it home. I don't take them all home all the time. <laughs> Hunting Eichmann by Neil Bascom is just published by Houghton Mifflin and Company.